has been a delight to be with you this week. Uh, one of the joys, I was telling someone yesterday, uh, of uh, going to different parts of the world and, and just being able to teach scripture and kind of land in the middle of a bunch of uh, believers in different places. It's just a joy to see what God is doing uh, in various places. So I now have uh, Chapel Hill in my uh, brain and uh, we'll pray for you and, and what's going on here in this place, but it's wonderful to be with you. Tonight, um, what I'm going to do is walk through various ways that the New Testament authors kind of appropriate the Old Testament. So we're going to talk about just the amazing uh, cohesion of the whole story of Scripture. There are over 60,000 cross-references in the Bible. Um, and I'm going to show you a depiction of that digitally tonight that's, that's just beautiful and it's kind of amazing. Uh, but what I want to do is go through and talk about the difference between quotations, allusions, and echoes, especially. We'll talk about general themes that uh, authors bring in. John is really big on these kind of broad themes of fulfillment, uh, different institutions of Judaism. Um, but we're going to also look at the whispers that are all over the place in the New Testament, where you just have a word or two that kind of evokes uh, you're thinking about a particular Old Testament text. And for those of us not saturated in the Old Testament, we just go right by these things and never see them. But they have great implications for what the authors are doing. Um, so we're going to look at some of those. And to me, that's where the, the artistry and the beauty comes in as these things are woven into the story of the Gospels, for instance. And you start seeing these, these amazing connections. So we're going to have some time tonight to look through that. Well, it'll be very informal. We'll just kind of hang out and, and uh, have a good conversation together. I want us to start this morning with a poem by Malcolm Guy. Malcolm is uh, in Cambridge in the UK, and uh, Malcolm um, is an interesting dude. He, uh, he's teaching a course at, at Regent this week on poetry. And uh, Malcolm is uh, a chaplain at one of the colleges. He is a poet. He plays in a rock band. Uh, he has his own rock band in Cambridge. But he, he looks kind of like the cross, cross between a dwarf and a hobbit. Uh, just the way he dresses. And if, you, if you've ever seen a picture of him, maybe I'll flash it. I should have put a picture of Malcolm up here. But I call him a dwabbit because he's kind of a, a cross between a dwarf and a hobbit. But I loved his poetry, and his poetry has kind of gotten me into kind of um, in some neo-traditional forms of poetry. Um, so I want to start with this poem, which really speaks about a form of incarnating uh, the word as Christ's followers in the world. Incarnation is distinct to Christ himself, but we are called to embody uh, the presence of Christ in the world and, and the work of Christ in the world. So I want to start with this. Just listen to this uh, poem as if. The giver of all gifts asks me to give. The fountain from which every good thing flows. The light who spends himself that all might live. The root whence every bud and blossom grows. Calls me as if I knew no limitation. As if I focused all his hidden force. Be created with his new creation, to find my flow in him, my living source. To live as if I had no fear of losing. To spend as if I had no need to earn. To turn my cheek as if it felt no bruising. 
to lend as yeah. if it, I needed no return. As if my debts and sins were all forgiven. As if I too could body forth this heaven. Mm. I love that concept of bodying forth. That's an idea which he's picking up on earlier, uh, earlier piece of literature there. We, we talked yesterday about um, the work of Christ. We, we saw a section in chapter 5 verses 1 through 10, where the author is launching um, a, a whole movement on the appointment of Christ as high priest. And if you don't get anything else in terms of the framework of Hebrews, I want you to understand that this great center section is about the unique appointment of Jesus as our mediator, as our high priest, who has decisively dealt with our sins and brings us right into the presence <laughs> of the Father. Uh, that's this movement that we're going to focus on today, and then we're going to transition into the next movement, which is on the superior offering of this high priest. Why is Jesus offering better than the Levitical priests of the Old Testament? What is superior about his offering? And that's what we're going to see in chapter 8, verses 1, uh, all the way through 10, 18. So we're going to uh, today kind of move into a second phase here where we're focusing on chapter 7 and then uh, we're going to take a look at chapter 8 in our second time together. All right, so we're going to turn to chapter 7 verses 1 through 10. If you have um, your structure of the book, you might want to get that out and, and kind of keep it next to you as you think about that. But we're going to talk specifically in this session about Melchizedek. Now, I'll warn you from the beginning, this chapter 7 is the most Jewish in its way of thinking. Uh, the logic here is kind of thick. It's, um, it's very detailed, and it's uh, hard for us to get our minds around a little bit in terms of, of what the author is doing. There's some concepts here that we'll kind of have to unpack a bit. Uh, it's interesting, a few years ago, I was teaching in Israel, and I was teaching the book of Hebrews at, at a college in Netanya, there and um, I was talking to my students and getting ready to go into this passage with them and I kind of said what I just said to you I said now I'm interested to see how you will respond from a Jewish context Jewish cultural background and that kind of thing and we went through it and their response was that's not difficult to understand at all it makes perfect sense to us <laughs> so from their perspective and kind of uh, their Jewish way of thinking they grasped it immediately and really kind of understood the, the logic of what was going on. But it does take some processing. So we're going to kind of take our time and just work through a little bit at a time here to understand what the author is trying to do, what he's saying as he makes a case for the superiority of Jesus. Now, if you'll look uh, there on your uh, structure, if you have it, uh, you'll see that the purpose of 7, 1 through 10 is to lay the groundwork of an argument that Jesus has a superior type of priesthood. So we saw in 5, 1 through 10, kind of an introduction to the appointment of Jesus, where the author, in essence, introduces Psalm 110, 4. And the reason he did that, remember, he's had Psalm 110 has been very central to what the author's been doing, this exaltation of Jesus to the right hand. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. I think the way that the author of Hebrews 
got to what he's doing in this book is he just kept reading Psalm 110. And he got to verse 4, and it said, You are a priest forever, speaking to the same one being addressed in Psalm 110.1. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. And I think what the author said at that point was, Hmm, I wonder what that would mean. And started unpacking this theologically and biblically. And went from Psalm 110.4 to Genesis 14, which is the only other passage in Scripture that talks about Melchizedek. So as a good rabbinic type of student of the Bible, this author pulled in this other passage from Genesis 14 to start unpacking what it might mean for Jesus to be a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Does that make sense? So that's how he's getting to this. Now what has happened, uh, if you take a look at your uh, structure of the book, what has happened in the meantime? I said that this whole movement on the appointment is interrupted. This is actually rhetorically very powerful because what happens is with 5, 1 through 10, the author kind of gets to the end of that and he says, I have a lot to say to you about this guy Melchizedek, but we need to talk about you first. And so what he does in essence is he pushes the pause button on that discussion of Melchizedek in order to turn to them and rivet their attention on why this is so important. And so he goes in 5, 11 through 14. He talks about the fact that by this time they ought to be teachers, but they need someone to teach them the ABCs of the faith again. He's saying you guys ought to be much farther along in what you're doing in terms of your Christian faith, but you've come to be nothroi is the Greek, is the Greek word, dull of hearing. You've gotten to where you don't hear, you don't listen well. And so he then moves from that into the warning that we have in 6, 4 through 8, <coughs> that harsh warning that says it's, you know, this is so serious because if somebody actually turns away from this message of salvation, uh, it's, it's not a good thing. He actually depicts those who have left the church as aligning with those over opposite the cross. You remember Matthew's Gospel? Matthew says that the leaders of Jerusalem were there at the cross saying to Jesus, hey, if you really are Messiah, come down from the cross. You know, if you've really got the power, then you come on down. In other words, they're saying, you're, you're not Messiah. You're not Son of God. You're just a guy dying on the cross. And what the author does in 6, 4 through 8 is he in essence says that those who have turned their back on Christ, turned their back on the church, in essence, what they're doing is they're joining those over at opposite the cross and saying, you know, you're, you really don't have anything to offer me at all. That kind of idea. Um, so understand that the apostasy that we find in Hebrews is not just people struggling with the faith, kind of drifting away emotionally or something like that. This, these are people who have, who have stood and said, I don't, I don't buy this. And so he's saying that if you are moving in that direction, you are in a dangerous place spiritually. You're in a dangerous place. The stakes are extremely high. And what he does in uh, 6, 9 and following is he actually mitigates that. He softens that warning by coming around and saying, but you know what? I have confidence in you guys. I have confidence that you're not going to be in that category. Uh, so he, he does this several times in the book where he'll give a harsh warning 
and then he'll come around and he'll soften it, which is kind of a, an interesting rhetorical move. It's like when my kids were small, I remember one time my son, um, Joshua, was, was fairly small. And I had taught him that when we get out of the car at Walmart, that you stand by my side and you just kind of, you know, put your hand on daddy's side because I, I don't want you to run out into the traffic and get hurt. And we had gone to Walmart one time and, and you know, kids are just interested in everything. So he had seen something he was interested in and he, and while I was reaching to get something in the car, he had kind of walked out to the lane right where cars were kind of zipping you know, up and down the thing, and it, it frightened me, and so I, I immediately went and, and got him, and I got down on, on my knee, and I, I was very stern. I said, Joshua, you know, Daddy said that you need to stay right by me because I don't want you to get hurt, you know, this kind of thing, and he was, he was you know, puddles in the, in the <laughs> eyes, you know, started coming up, and then what I said was, now, now listen, Daddy loves you. I don't want you to, to get hurt, so the reason I tell you to do things like stand by me is because I want you to be safe. You know? um, so, so what I did is I went from kind of an intensity that was demanded by the moment to a softening that said, but you know what, you know, I know you're going to do the right thing, you know, that kind of thing. Well, that's, that's somewhat what the author of Hebrews does here. And then in uh, verses 13 and following to the end of the chapter, it's like an on-ramp back to Melchizedek. And we're not, we don't have time to go into that, but he kind of brings up Abraham and the promises to Abraham. And he says that the thing that gives us more stability and security in life than anything is that God has made an oath concerning Jesus. He's made an oath concerning Jesus. He, is, he has guaranteed that salvation would be granted to those who believe in Jesus. It's like an anchor to the soul, he says. And so he has this, uh, this very powerful moment, and you may remember in chapter 6, he says, uh, there are two things in which it's impossible for God to lie. And one of the big debates in Hebrew scholarship is what are those two things? Well, I think the two things are the two parts of Psalm 104. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Those are the two things. Those are the part of the oath. Listen to Psalm 104 again. Uh, four again. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. And that's the end of chapter 6. And then what he does in chapter 7 is he, he treats those in inverted order. Chapter 7, verses 1 through 10, is according to the order of Melchizedek. He deals with Melchizedek. Chapter 7, verse 11 and following, you are a priest forever. And he's going to show that the superiority of Jesus is based on, in part on the fact that he has a resurrected life. He does not die. And one of the points he's going to make is the problem with those Levitical priests is they kept dying on you. And so he's going to come around and say, no, we have an eternal covenant through Christ that's not going to change. And that's the basis for stability. Okay? So the purpose of this uh, section here in 7, 1 through 10 is to lay the groundwork for that argument uh, that Jesus has a superior kind of priesthood, but he's going to begin with arguing 
that Melchizedek himself was superior to the Levitical priests. So since Jesus is a Melchizedekan priest, the author's going to unpack what does that mean and why is that significant? Well, it's significant because even in the material that we have, the little bit that we have in the Bible on Melchizedek, it shows that he, he was some kind of superior figure, even to Father Abraham. And in Jewish fashion, he's going to reason that the Levites, if you think about it, were in his loins at that time, is what the author's going to say. You know, they weren't born yet, so they were kind of a part of Abraham. So in a sense, the Levites themselves, as a part of their father Abraham, were uh, doing homage, if you will, to Melchizedek, were reverencing him. And we'll talk about that idea of reverence or respect here in just a minute, which is a very important concept. All right, so hold on to your hats. We're going to uh, kind of work our way through the logic here and see, uh, see what we can find in terms of the implications for us. The process um, is... Uh, really a form that we would call midrash. Midrash is, just means commentary. It's kind of an unpacking. Now, uh, if any of you are familiar with the midrashim of Judaism, midrashim are a bit different. There's a, there's a genre, a type of literature called the midrashim. This is not what I'm talking about. Midrash is also a methodology of unpacking, kind of uh, the way we would have somebody read, well, in fact, what I'm doing here, which is, you know, reading a text and then gradually kind of working our way through and unpacking the different points of the text, that is Midrash. So what the author's going to do, he's going to do that with Genesis 14 and start pulling out some aspects of that passage in light of Psalm 1104. Okay? So that's our process. All right. Uh, this is the passage from Genesis that the author is going to be dealing with. Um, and he says this, after Abraham returned from defeating Pedro uh, Laomer and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. And then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Notice that, that's very interesting, isn't it? Brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. So he's not a pagan priest. He is, he is actually a priest of the Most High God. Uh, and he blessed Abraham, saying, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. And praise be to God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. And then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. <clears throat> so he comes and he blesses Abraham he puts the whole uh, narrative that has just happened in Genesis with the defeat of the kings into perspective. He says that it was God who's working this out. God is the one who fought on your behalf. And he puts it in uh, kind of that worldview perspective, if you will. Now, when we turn to the passage in Hebrews, verses 1 through 3 are specifically him doing immediate reflection, kind of introduction to this passage from Genesis. So let's read this out loud together so we can all kind of wake up, um, and uh, then we'll kind of talk our way through what's going on here. This Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God most high. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, the name of Melchizedek means king of God. 
Melchizedek is a type of Christ or an appearance of Christ? We're going to get to that. <laughs> We're going to get to that in a few minutes. Um, so hold that question. That's a great question. Um, and we're going, to, we're going to take a look at that in just a minute. Now, one of the things the author is doing here in the passage is he is playing off of the words and their associations here, which is a very Jewish thing to do. The Hebrew text uh, back in the ancient world did not have the vowels and the pointing, all these little dots and T's and things like that. That it did not have that. You just had the straight uh, letters of the Hebrew text. Okay, so what happened as a person learned to read the Bible is they learned the pronunciation in context of the different words to fit. But sometimes what you have is you have words that are associated with other words. So let me give you a couple of examples here that he's dealing with. So in Genesis 14, the Hebrew text reads here: uh, Now Melchizedek. King of Salem, King of Salem. The word for king in Hebrew is Melech, and then righteousness is Sedek. All right. So these are associated. So you have um, notice Melech Sedek. This idea here. So what the author of Hebrews is doing is playing off of this and saying he is king of righteousness. In the Qumran scrolls, if I'm remembering correctly, Melchizedek's name is actually presented as two words. Okay, So you have the king of righteousness, and then also as king of Salem, it's the same word for shalom. Same three letters for shalom. So what the author is doing is saying he is king of righteousness and he is king of peace. So he's drawing these associations between the words, which would be a very, very normal thing to do. And, and the principle behind that is uh, there are no unimportant bits with God. You know, the way God has laid out the scripture, there are associations that can made, be made because God has kind of orchestrated all this to fit together in some way. Uh, and in the ancient world as well, people's names were significant. They said something about them or how they had come into the world or their place in the world or whatever. So what the author's doing is he's beginning by kind of just the obvious stuff that is right there in the text, that whoever this figure was, this is a person who is associated with the Most High God, they're associated with righteousness, and they're associated with peace. Does that make sense? All right. Again, not exactly the way we would normally unpack things and think about it, but it's, it's pretty basic stuff. Uh, shalom means peace or soundness or wholeness or welfare. And so what we have in our text here, uh, that, let me go back to the text itself. Uh, what we have in our text here is that Abraham has been off on a rescue mission, in effect, and rescues lots, defeats these pagan kings who have come against him. Uh, Abraham... Uh, as he comes back, is met by this figure, Melchizedek. And what does he do? Uh, this is a person who comes to Melchizedek, and he blesses him, he refreshes him, and he blesses him. He refreshes him and blesses him. He brings bread and wine, which would be some of the most basic aspects of hospitality in the ancient world. Uh, so you have, you have a picture here 
of this priest going and meeting Abraham and, and giving him hospitality with basic elements of life, basic blessings of life, bread and wine. One of the things that we talk a lot about uh, at Regent is the dynamic of hospitality. When my wife and I uh, felt called to move to Vancouver and to be a part of Regent, we felt like the Lord had shaped our lives in such a way that we would have to be close, close to the campus because my wife needs to be profoundly involved in the campus and we need the campus to be profoundly involved in our home. We need people to be able to flow both ways um, in that context because we believe that hospitality is a huge way of opening your life to others and, and ministering to them. When you come to, to Regent, I'm assuming that some of you are gonna come up and take some classes there. PR. Uh, when you come, uh, we would love to have you in our home, and I mean that sincerely, uh, because I think a huge part of what we ought to be doing is crafting the type of Christian community where homes are very open to people, and we especially do things around food. So notice that on behalf of God, what, what Melchizedek is doing is coming and opening uh, hospitality, welcoming, receiving you, we could immediately draw associations, of course, to later on the Lord's Supper, you know, the idea of the bread and the wine at the Lord's Supper. Um, and they're, I'm not saying this is a prophecy of that, maybe a type of that. We'll, we'll talk about that in a bit. But at the very least, what it is, is the connection that being around a table, uh, sharing food with other people is a most fundamental aspect of renewal and refreshment. In life, and isn't it isn't it interesting that even in the tabernacle of the Old Testament, there's a table that has bread, and and in that imagery of the tabernacle, I think what God is doing is inviting people into table fellowship with Himself, that relational identity that God has with us. So Melchizedek opens up, uh, blesses, gives renewal to Abraham. And, and blesses uh, him, blesses him, all right? So you have this idea of um, a blessing that is taking place in the passage. Now, what he does as he unpacks the sense of what's going on is he is reading Genesis 14 in light of Psalm 110.4. And I think he's specifically interested in this terminology that uh, Melchizedek is a person uh, in Psalm 104. Uh, you are a priest, what's the word? Forever. forever. You are a priest forever. So there's something about Melchizedek that is mysterious and, and has an eternal nature to it. Has an eternal nature to it. Um, he, he, he is perpetually a priest. And he's going to focus on that as he moves to verse 3 in his commentary here, without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. Now what's he, what he's doing here is in light of Psalm 110.4, you are a priest forever, he's noticing that in the Genesis text, there's no mention of his heritage. There's no mention of his father, his mother, beginning of days, end of life. Why would he focus on those if he's about to move into a comparison with the Levitical priests? 
Okay, they died. That's one thing, but there's something else really important. Oh, never mind. No, it's okay. Well, I was going to say, but you, you already said it, Levitical, that they have a they have a they have an origin. That's it. In, 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 in the tribal in the tribal Levi. That that's exactly right. Uh, appointment to priesthood in Levitical priesthood had to do with your family, had to do with your parents, uh, and so what he's doing here in good Jewish fashion is he's saying, look, there's nothing emphasized in Genesis 14 about who, where this guy came from, who he was, that's in contrast to the Levitical priest in a sense because he is priest of God Most High. He's a legit priest, but he's not a normal priest according to the Levitical system because that system hadn't come along yet, right? So here's a priest of God Most High who's a real priest of God who is able to come and bring blessing, uh, draw people, mediate relationship with God, that kind of thing. And you don't even have the Levitical priests around yet. So he's saying right here in Scripture, we have a legitimate form of priesthood that is a priesthood like Melchizedek. And that's the kind of priest that Jesus is. Okay. Yeah, Bob? Well, one of the things that strikes me about this is um, it's very unusual that Abraham, I can't think of another place in the Old Testament where Abraham gets blessed by a priest unless that priest is forced to by God. Because it does happen, but it's only under forceful conditions. This, this is, he's not forced there. That's right. one thing. Very unusual. Yeah. And the other thing is that Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. Yes. That that doesn't happen. That's right. <laughs> I've never seen that happen before. You know, you're, you're just right in track with what the author is about to say next. Um, because this whole thing of giving tithes is a huge deal. Um, and we're going to see that in just a minute. So thank you for that. Appreciate well, in the Jewish tradition, you do give a tithe to the temple. Right. That, that's an acknowledgement of this is what we owe to the that's right. priesthood. Yeah, that's right. And that's kind of coming out of Levitical law, you know, that you took care of the, the priests and that kind of thing by your tithe. And that's exactly what the author is about to do, is to make the point, this is upside down from what we would normally expect in a Levitical type setting. So, yeah. significant that this blessing and this moment of mediation between God and Abraham opens the door to the next step in Abraham's relationship with God, which is a real important narrative development. He's not really interested in, he, you know, he just, everybody knows that this is Father Abraham we're talking about here. So he's not interested in the change of name at this point, but you're right, uh, you have transitions going on here. Oh. <laughs> okay, yes. George, maybe you mentioned this. Before, but Psalm 110, did David write that song? Or 
Uh, it is this question about the, the origin of the psalm, but it is to a Davidic, it's, it's about a, a son of David, uh, monarch. I'm, I'm trying to think if, if the uh, prescript in Psalm 110 and our Bibles in the way that we have it, let's just take a look real quickly at that and see if it act, what the uh, attribution is at the top, actually what it says, because it's been a while since I've looked at that. Okay, Psalm of David. So yes, it is Psalm of David. Yeah, very good. Yes. This may be a rabbit trail too, but I was just wondering about this. There was the king of Salem that had this role to play, Melchizedek, and then there was also with Abraham, the king of Sodom, which is where he ends up having he goes and lives in Sodom and has to be delivered from there, and that's a whole episode. Yeah. And then you have kind of the Salem part that takes place next. Yeah. And I wondered if that was kind of set up to be like maybe foreshadowing of what the future yeah. was going to be about. Yeah, I think in the immediate narrative, what's going on is the contrast it is really important. And I'll, I'll say this, and then we, we really need to move on. But the contrast <laughs> is uh, in kind of normally the way things work in the culture, if you went and you played a significant role in, de in defeating someone, you got to keep that loot as a part of your cake, you know, for going and defeating these other kings. And if you notice in the narrative, what happens in the story is the king of Sodom comes and says, okay, let's kind of work all this out. And Abraham says, look, I don't want anything from you. Uh, all I'll take is just what's been eaten by the servants and that kind of thing, and I don't need anything else because I don't want you saying that you're the one who made Abraham rich. And what he's saying is, I'm completely dedicated to God. God's going to take care of me. And so what you have is a, a kind of a, 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 a radical, if you will, uh, submission, commitment to God, to being God's person in the world that is countercultural. Something to think he about. He kind of chooses Salem over Sodom. Yeah, he, he, he does in that, in that moment, narrative moment, he does. And there's kind of maybe a play on words there, too, with, with Sodom and Salem, just one letter difference there. But in the narrative, you want you do want to read these things narratively, uh, narratively, and, and see how they're unfolding. All right. Uh, you have one more question right here, and then we're gonna we need to move on. But yes. Uh, so we, I know that this is that Hebrews is written by a, a very well entrenched Jewish author with a Jewish worldview. Right. But how much of the consideration of Jesus being a high priest, not bound in the Levitical system, is Jesus being a high priest also for Gentiles? Yeah, that's actually a that's that's a really interesting uh, question. Um, I think I think that it, it is an important question because it, it takes us back to Abraham's era, mm -hmm. and and the blessing of Abraham is uh, Bob and I were actually talking about this this morning. The blessing of Abraham in Genesis twelve is from the beginning whole world. Mm -hmm. It's it's all peoples will be blessed through you that kind of idea. So uh, kind of the vision of what's going on here is more global, and the story of Abraham is reversing uh, some of the things that we see earlier, the curse earlier in Genesis, and part of the way it's doing that is it's, it's outward reaching to the whole world, which you remember in the Genesis creation stories, God wanted humanity to be over the whole world, to kind of rule as king and queen over the whole world. 
So you have uh, this kind of whole world, all the nations kind of mentality right there very, very early. And I think, I think that this could be a part of that, you know, that, that it's bigger than just the, the Levitical uh, priesthood itself. Okay. All right. So let's, uh, let's kind of see how the author then takes this and develops it as he moves to the next section. And, and uh, what I'm going to do is read this and then uh, kind of unpack some aspects of it here for us to think about as we kind of work our way through. So what he says in, in this um, next movement towards the 10, just think how great he was. Even the patriarch Abraham gave him a tenth of the plunder. Now the law requires the descendants of Levi who become priests to collect a tenth from the people, that is, from their fellow Israelites, even though they also are descended from Abraham. This man, however, did not trace his descent from Levi, yet he collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed him who had the promise. So let's start with that point. It goes back to the idea of tithe that Bob mentioned a minute ago. So uh, what he's saying is that in the Levitical system of law, which wasn't around yet, but in that Levitical system, what God eventually would do is set it up where all the rest of the people would bring tithes to the Levites, kind of support them in their living. That's the way the law was set up. So if you think about it, the Levites had a special place as the, playing this mediatorial role with God. They had kind of a uniqueness among the people of Israel. And one of the manifestations of that is everybody else uh, in this people come and they bring their tithes to the Levites as kind of this special group of people. Everybody with me so far? All right. So he says, that's not the case that we see here. That's not who's receiving tithes. Uh, Melchizedek is in such a special place, if you will, that these special people, the Levites, who are still in the loins of their father Abraham, father Abraham being the greatest most revered person as the father of the nation. Abraham and the Levites in his loins come and they treat Melchizedek as unique and special in giving tithes as a special mediator with God. You with me? It's a little hard to get our heads around if you're not used to thinking like this, but it is, his point is that in, in the Jewish framework, just used to thinking about the specialness and the set-off nature of the Levites and manifesting and, and giving tithes. He says, this shows that Melchizedek, priest of God most high, king of righteousness and peace, was unique, was someone who uh, even Abraham, even Father Abraham gave deference to and manifested by the sharing of tithes as, as having a special priestly relationship with God. All right, so that's his, that's his logic of what he's doing so far. But then he goes on and he says this, um, Abraham, and he blessed him, he collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises, and without doubt, the lesser is blessed by the greater. Now that's not always the case in scripture. Sometimes we as human beings bless God. That would be the, the lesser blessing the greater, right? But what he's saying in this context, if you go and you read the narrative carefully, in this context in Genesis, what is happening here is the lesser person. Think about this. Father Abraham being described as lesser in, 
this situation. The lesser is blessed by the greater in this situation. The person of a higher status, that kind of idea. Um, now, we know this idea of, of deference when we have somebody in a position who is higher than us. Um, Jeff Greenman is the president at Regent, and I uh, have a great relationship with him. He's very approachable. But you know, I never kind of walk into his office and Maria's out there, you know, kind of guarding the, the holy dinner, holy of holies. <laughs> I never walk in, just barge in and say, hey, Maria, I'm going to see Jeff. And just walk in, you know, if he's in there with a board member or writing or doing whatever, he, whatever he's doing, I never do that because I like my job. <laughs> right? But, but it's appropriate that I would come in and I would, I, as the president in his position, it's appropriate that I would come in and I would show respect. Appropriate respect because of his position. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's the same way if you have a dignitary come, if you had a very famous person come and they were, you know, participating in something that, that you were doing here, uh, you would show respect <coughs> and deference to that, to that person, right? Uh, I was thinking we had Tom Wright, I mentioned, at Regent last week, and uh, it was a big week for us. Most classes in summer classes have, like, between 30 and 70 students. Tom Wright's class had 320 or something like that, uh, 350, I forget exactly the number. But it's because he's, he's one of the most prominent New Testament scholars in the world. And we had him over Monday night with the New Testament people to our house to, you know, have a meal and this kind of thing. And you kind of you kind of think, okay, we need to do this right. Well, because it's Tom Wright. But, <laughs> but Tom, and Tom I, I really appreciate Tom's work and I've learned so much from him. There's little things that I would want to push back on and dialogue about, but I have, I have great respect for him. And so, you know, you kind of work at that kind of moment because you're, you're showing an appropriate respect for the work someone has done and, you know, their position in the world, the impact that they've had globally, that, that kind of thing. And I think what's going on here when he says the lesser is blessed by the greater, he's saying from the narrative what we see is that Abraham is showing a deference and a respect to the unique position of Melchizedek. All right? So that's... That's kind of what the author is doing um, here in this part of the passage. All right? So that's the logic that he's kind of working through here. It really fits Judaism of the period. Abraham, that Abraham tied to him shows his greatness. Um, and then Melchizedek, uh, his priesthood's not based on ancestry. He's going to go on. He's going to talk about the fact that um, Melchizedek clearly then was superior to the Levitical priest. He was clearly superior. He's a different kind of figure. He's a different kind of priest. He's, he has a, a superior status in a sense, just when you look at the narrative, what's going on. And he, so what he's done is he's unpacked the basic stuff that you have there in Genesis 14 um, that kind of describes what we know about Melchizedek. And that's not much, but, but what we do see of him. Now, one of the big questions is the question that Dr. Fred uh, raised here, and it's very hard to answer real specifically. In, uh, in Judaism of the period, one of the things that was uh, 
has been discussed a great deal is that, you know, was Melchizedek kind of this prominent figure in broader Judaism who was kind of an angelic type being? There's debate about that. Um, one of my colleagues, uh, Gary Cockrell, who uh, has written a very important commentary on the book of Hebrews, uh, Gary would say there's really very little to no evidence in uh, broader Judaism of the time that they had this kind of exalted view of Melchizedek. Um, but what you have here is, uh, is clearly the uniqueness of this person. Um, and I think that, that maybe what is going on, I don't think this is kind of a, a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ because he's made like the Son of God. He's made like the Son of God. He's not the Son of God. He is like the Son of God in the perpetual nature of his priesthood. All right, there's there is something about him that seems to to be you know yeah, this, eternal. This without origin and without end. Yeah. There are not many of those. Well, <laughs> yeah. I think that what he's saying, you're right. That that really makes him very unique. Um, but I think what he's saying is that in the narrative itself, we have no mention of these things. He's he's not. He he is saying that that in some strange, mysterious way. He, he has an eternality about him. I don't know if the author felt like he never died, you know, because uh, there were people in Scripture who were taken directly to the Lord, you know, that, that kind of thing. But they know origin. Yeah, again, I think with the without, without beginning of days or end of life, uh, I think what he's doing is he's just drawing parallels there. He's saying that there's nothing here that tells us about his origin. It may be that he's making a statement about, you know, as a human, I think he definitely believes he's a human being, okay? Now, the other question is, is he, is he a type of Christ? Now, typology is one way that we talk about the relationship between what's going on in the Old Testament and what's going on in the New Testament. So you have um, this idea that there were institutions like the temple or the tabernacle or the sacrificial system that are foreshadowing what would be fulfilled later in the area of the in the era of the Messiah. Okay, uh, so that's a, that's typology where you have a, a something in the Old Testament that then is anticipating a greater fulfillment in the New Testament. Okay, uh, and I think that this this can be understood as typological in this priesthood. And I think the author would say, well, that's obvious because of Psalm 110.4, which is applied to Jesus. So that Melchizedek is whatever he is, and we're not told. That's one of the questions I want to ask when I see the Lord face to face. <laughs> Let me talk to Melchizedek. I want to find out about this guy. Uh, but whatever, whatever he is, he is connected to the priesthood, of, the ultimate priesthood of Jesus. He's anticipating that in his priesthood. I think that's the point of what the author is making. And I think what's unique, too, is that he's also a king. And so, again, yeah. tying him. He's a king Christ, priest, right, absolutely. King priest. And then also the fact that a king of Salem, which I think, like you're saying, a type, which then I think links him sort of the forever Prince concept. Prince of Peace, yeah. And, and the concept, not only, and also I think in a concrete way, isn't that down the road historically linked to Jerusalem? Yes. Well, Yerushalayim, yes, so the name Jerusalem right. itself so has that word in, in there. In a primitive yeah. way, hasn't quite been fulfilled yet. Or yeah, yeah, I think there are a lot of connections here that are anticipating mm -hmm. what would be fully developed uh, in Christ himself, mm -hmm. all right? So, um, 
Yes, back here. This could be rabbit trail, so feel free to interrupt that question. <laughs> is, is there a Jewish response, like a medieval commentary to Hebrews that's talking about Mephibosheth? Do they ever deal with sort of Mephibosheth as a, a post-Jewish? Yeah, you know, it's not really my area of expertise. Um, I know that there have been Jewish responses to what's going on in Hebrews, but I, I'm not really familiar with them. I just know they're out, out there, so... Sorry about that. I wish I could help you more with that. Yes. Um, could you shed light on the significance of him blessing Abraham in return? It seems like that <coughs> some weight in the passage. It's huge weight. And yeah. From a, specifically from the a Jew's perspective, the, the significance of the priest. Yeah. Again, these things, if we read them in kind of narrative context, right, the development of the narrative context, then you you see that the blessing of someone is a very, very significant uh, thing. It, it wasn't just one thing, like the blessing of a father to the son, but those, like you think about uh, Jacob and Esau's story, uh, those kinds of things, the blessing was, was very significant as seen as, in a sense, communicating wholeness, well-being, a great future to the person who is being blessed, right? So it's not just it's not just blessing. You know, we kind of have this southern thing where we say, "Well, bless you." You know, <laughs> bless bless his heart. You know, that, that kind of thing. Right? I love coming so early. You actually understand what I'm talking about. That's great. Uh, so it's not it's not that. It was the idea that uh, a kind of a form of intense prayer communicating um, the well-being and future of a person. So that is, that's, a, that's a very significant point. And for the author of Hebrews himself, he's saying this is really huge, that it was Melchizedek the priest who blessed Abraham right as he was getting ready to step into this developing relationship with God in chapters 15 and chapter 17, you know, as God would, would make him the father of, of the nation and, and that kind of thing. So it, you're right. Thank you for emphasizing that. That's a, that's a really, really important point. Okay, now we're going to uh, need to kind of do an overview of the latter part of the chapter here. Um, just kind of keep moving before we, before we take a break. But I want you to notice that what happens here is that you move from the superiority of Melchizedek in 7, 1 through 10 to the superiority of our Melchizedekan high priest found in the oath of Psalm 4. So he's, he's now laid the foundation stone of, of the superiority of, Mel, of, of uh, Melchizedek to the Levitical priest, and he's now going to build on that. The next block that he's going to put on top of it is the superiority of Jesus to the Levitical priest. Because you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So the logic here is kind of building uh, superiority of Melchizedek, and if that's the case then, why is, how is Jesus superior as a high priest to the Levitical priest. Okay? Everybody? Which is why I think it validates the fact that it's not really Christophany, because he's using it as a comparison. Yeah, that's he's right. He's this big, Jesus is that big. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's a, it's a logic, it's a logical development. We've seen that before with like the angelic beings, his comparison with the angelic beings, where he's building in that way. Um, maybe in the, in the uh, discussion time, we can talk about um, some implications of that and the way we think about talking to people about the superiority of Christ. So we'll, we'll, maybe we'll get to that and talk about that in a minute. So in 11 through 28, let's talk about purpose and process just for a minute. 
So the purpose is to show Jesus, Melchizedek, and priesthood is superior to the Levitical priests. We've already said that. Uh, the process, what he's now going to do, you know, he's been dealing with Genesis 14 in the first 10 verses. Now what he's going to do is he's going to turn to Psalm 110.4. And he's going to kind of unpack parts of this passage because it focuses on the order of Melchizedek. And he's going to start with that order of Melchizedek in the passage. So let me talk about this first part of the passage here. Um, which is really focused on the idea of the order of Melchizedek. So again, Psalm 110.4, uh, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So this is the part in 11 through 15, I think, uh, where he's focusing on the order of Melchizedek. So if perfection had in fact been possible through the Levitical priesthood, and I translate this, for on that basis the people received the law. What are, that's what this translation says. The people received the law. What further need would there have been for another priest to arise said to be in the order of Melchizedek and not in Aaron's order? All right, so let me talk about that, a couple things there, just for a second. So what, what does Hebrews mean when it talks about perfection? We've already seen this. Jesus having been made perfect, um, he's going to talk about followers of Jesus being perfected. Perfection in Hebrews is not referring to something that was flawed and then becomes unflawed. Let me say that again. Perfection in Hebrews is not speaking of something that was flawed and then became unflawed. That's one way that we think about the concept of perfection. Perfection in Hebrews means that something is gotten to the point that God wanted it to be. The sense of completeness. Um, if you think about someone going through training, for instance, this is just an analogy, but if, if I am going into a new position at work and I go through a, a massive amount of training to get up to speed in my position. I go all the way through the course I'm supposed to go through, and then I come to certification, which says, okay, training's complete. This person is now fit for this position. Everybody with me on that? Yeah. So that's the sense of perfection here, having been gotten to the place that you needed to get to. Uh, when it talks about Jesus being perfected through sufferings that we saw a bit earlier in the book, it means that he went all the way on the path of suffering that the Father had him on and got to the place where he would be fit, perfect, to be our high priest, to function as our high priest. And, and going through the process of suffering was part of that. Okay? So here he says, perfection wasn't possible through the Levitical priesthood. The way we might say that is the Levitical priesthood was never intended to get people ultimately to the place that God wanted people to be. It never was intended to get them all the way to the place that God wanted them to be. It, it maintained relationship with God. It facilitated relationship with God. But it never was intended to get people to where they want to be. In Paul's theology, what Paul will say is that uh, the problem with the law was not 
that inherently the law was flawed in, in a sense. It was just that it couldn't bring about transformation. What the law couldn't do is what the spirit could do, which was transform the human heart. It could maintenance it, but it could never transform it. It could never give life. It couldn't give life. That was not the function of the law. Okay? So perfection, getting us to where we need to be ultimately in relationship with God was never what the Levitical priesthood was going to be able to do. Now, it says here, for on that basis, I would translate, translate that phrase something like, with reference to it, the people received the law. Uh, your translation says that a bit differently. The, the uh, prepositions that we have in the Greek New Testament, some of them, like ace and epi and, and others, are just, they have like 15, 18 different possibilities in the way you translate them. Uh, but I think here, the better translation here is that with reference to the Levitical pe priesthood, people had received the law. What further need would there have been for another priest to rise said to be in the order of Melchizedek and not in Aaron's order? In other words, Psalm 110.4, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek, was just unnecessary if the Levitical priesthood was going to be able to get us where we need to be. So this is the author's logic. The psalm was written long after the law. And when the psalm, when, when the spirit through David says, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek, he says, okay, there's another priesthood being inserted into what God is doing in the world here in Psalm 124. And so you have this priesthood according to the order of Melchizedek put into the equation. And it shows that something different is going to happen that's beside the Levitical priesthood. Verse 12, for when the priesthood changes, a change of law must come as well. In other words, God obviously is doing something different than the laws according to Levitical priests. With Psalm 110.4. God's doing something different here. Yet, the one these things are spoken about, that's Jesus, belongs to a different tribe, and no one from that tribe is ever officiated at the altar, for it is clear that our Lord is descended from Judah, not Levi. Yet Moses said nothing about priests in connection with that tribe. And this is even clearer if another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek. So it's kind of you know, hard to follow the, the intricate logic here, but the basic idea is that the reality of Psalm 124 and, and what Jesus has come and done shows that God has set up a different kind of priesthood for the Levites. told you the logic's a little bit thick kind of have to have to work at tracking with it but if you just boil it down to this idea what is the significance of psalm 1104 which was written long time after the law what's the significance of it that's what the author's trying to unpack it just shows that there's another kind of priesthood operative here that is important now what he's going to do in the next part is um, He's going to unpack the other part of Psalm 124, and that is, you are a priest forever, the eternality, the eternality of Jesus' priesthood. So I just want to read through this and comment on, a, on some aspects of it, but that's what I want you to zero in on 
is that Jesus is a priest, a Melchizedekan priest, not on the basis of parentage like the Levites, but on the basis of something else. So watch what he says here. Who has become a priest not by legal regulation, not by the law <clears throat> about physical descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For here is the testimony about him. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek, an eternal priest. On the one hand, a former command is set aside because it is weak and useless, for the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which <clears throat> we draw near to God. So just the basic idea here is Jesus is a priest, is a high priest on the basis of his indestructible life. Now let me just say a word about that because it's really important. I think for the early Christians, for the first Jews, the linchpin of the whole thing was the resurrection of Jesus. It was the resurrection of Jesus. If you go back to the book of Acts and you read about this development of the history of the early church, what happened, in fact, if you back up into the Gospels, what you find initially when Jesus is crucified, the disciples are despondent. They are locked, they're behind locked doors because they're afraid that they're going to be infiltrated and arrested. And something happens that there's a transformation to where a short time later these same disciples are boldly proclaiming in front of all the authorities of Jerusalem, this one whom you crucified, God has made him both Lord and Christ. And what happens is, through, through the book of Acts, if you'll go and you'll notice their testimony, they are eyewitnesses. That's the way they are described. They are eyewitnesses of the life and ministry, the death and resurrection of Jesus. So they are presenting themselves as eyewitnesses, and what they keep doing in their preaching is they keep pointing to the resurrection as the validation, the vindication of Jesus as the, the true Son of God and Messiah. So it was the resurrection for them that changed everything, changed everything. And I want to just say uh, that um, if Jesus Christ is really raised from the dead and seated at the right hand of power over the universe. It changes everything. Um, I was sharing with someone before <clears throat> we started that um, couple, the last two years before I moved to Vancouver, I had the privilege of being involved in talks in uh, the Jewish synagogue in, in Jackson, Tennessee. And the, the rabbi there, John, and I became really good friends. And we had, had two years of panel discussions on the relationship between Judaism and Christianity. And it was wonderful. I mean, just really a great, loving uh, conversation. And we got to be really close friends and everything. And one time, John and I were having lunch together talking about one of the upcoming panels. And, and John was saying, you know, uh, it's wonderful that we can have these conversations and kind of respect um, each other's positions and views and all this kind of stuff. And I said, I love that. And I said, John, I love you as a friend. I said, but you know where I'm coming from. That if, if Jesus Christ was raised from the dead and is Lord over the universe, that matters more than anything. You know? And I think that, that as we dialogue with 
you know, people in the world. We should be the most tolerant people in the world. We should be. We should be the most <coughs> loving, the most gracious. Uh, we need to to bend over backwards to embrace people lovingly. But that doesn't mean that we have to compromise on this central idea that, that if this is true, it's vitally important. It changes everything. Because what God has done is he's inserted himself into history to transform the trajectory of, of what's happening in the world. And so this idea of the vindication of Jesus as the one having destructive life, whatever you think about it, whatever you think about it, it, it is what for these first Jewish people, it's what changed everything. I think just as an example of how telling this is, um, John 7 tells us that prior to that last week of Jesus' life, prior to that last week of Jesus' life, Jesus' brothers did not believe in him. Now, you talk about being raised with sibling rivalry. Um, I mean, talk about pressure, being raised in the same household with perfect Jesus, right? Um, so, Evidently, there was tension there. And you actually see this in the Gospels. And John 7 says that his brothers did not believe in him. In fact, they were egging him on, saying, why don't you go up to the you know, feast and present yourself and all this kind of stuff. And Jesus doesn't kind of go with their plan initially. But then the oldest of his brothers, James, after the resurrection, becomes the leader of the Jerusalem church. He becomes one of the top three guys, really, in the Jerusalem church. Jesus' relatives, we know from history, uh, different documents outside of the New Testament, some of Jesus' relatives become some of the main leaders of the church. And I think the only way that happens is not by wishful thinking, like people say, you know, Jesus was just too good to be true. Yeah, we know he got killed, but can't we kind of just take a leap of faith like Bultmann was talking about? not about a leap of faith in that in the modern western sense it's about standing solidly on eyewitness testimony of what God had done in the world it does take trust just like you would trust the testimony of somebody right but it's not a blind leap that's a modern concept that's not biblical faith biblical faith is stepping out on the solidity of what God has done to reveal himself in the world that's faith so what he's yes, John. Just in regard to Rabbi John and the relationship to him, yes. I, I'm just wondering what the Jews, how they look at the, the rabbinical priesthood, you know, since 70 it, AD and, and sacrifices. Yeah, and it is varies, it just the temple? Or? Yeah, it varies widely. What happened? And that's a big rabbit that we can't follow too far. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> but what happened uh, after AD 70 was there was an adjustment to the situation in Judaism so that. For instance, prayers were seen as ways of offering sacrifices to God, you know, that kind of thing. There was adjustment with the destruction of the temple. You had different iterations of that. In the modern world, you have, you have different um, forms of Judaism, all the way from, you know, kind of fundamentalist, um, conservative forms of Judaism. You know, um, you can go and see the ultra-Orthodox in, in Israel today. Um, John's um, synagogue was, re was reformed, um, so it was more of a liberal form of, of Judaism, if you will. So, you know, some of the other guys could tell much more about that. But there are different ways that this has been processed and, and handled and developed, um, and it's, it's quite diverse, quite diverse. 
uh, in terms of how it's being responded to. All right, so let me give you the last part of this uh, before we take a break here and just show you where this goes to the end of the chapter. So he says, um, Jesus becoming a priest by his indestructible life was not done without a, an oath, is the way this uh, translation is rendering oath, sworn affirmation. For the others have become priests without a sworn affirmation, but Jesus did so with, a, with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. Accordingly, Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. And the others who became priests were numerous because death prevented them from continuing in office. But he holds the priesthood per permanently since he lives forever. So he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. So the idea is that with Jesus, he is such a permanent high priest that right now, in his role at the right hand of the Father, he is the guarantor of our relationship with God. He still functions as high priest. He is still interceding for us in that sense that he is, he is there to guarantee the covenant, the decisiveness of the forgiveness of our sins, that kind of thing. It's permanent. It's not, in other words, it hadn't changed. It's something that's going to last and forever is the, is the idea. Okay, so that is the that is the permanence, the eternality that he's he's playing off of from Psalm one ten four, and then he just wraps up back where we started at the beginning of chapter five. For it's fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need. To do every day what those priests do to offer sacrifices first for their own sins and then for the sins of the people. Since he did this in offering himself once for all. For the law appoints as high priests men subject to weakness. But the word of oath, solemn affirmation that came after the law appoints a son made perfect forever. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, just very briefly, let's think, think about application of this. And then um, we'll take a break, okay? So one way of thinking about this is that Christianity, as, as fulfillment of Judaism, for many people of, of the first century, this was what we in the modern era would call a paradigm shift. You know, you think of Thomas Kuhn's uh, uh, idea of, paradigm shift. You know, the world gets shifted in the way that you're, you're looking at it from, from your perspective. Um, and that's a normal fact of life. If you, if you encounter different kinds of culture at all. So last summer at this time, I was really feeling the effects of culture shock, moving to a different culture. With Canadian culture, it's just slightly out of phase with American culture in some ways, and then being on the, the West Coast, because Vancouver is more aligned really culturally with the West Coast of the United States than it is with the rest of Canada. Um, it was, it was a, a, a major shift, you know, where you're all of a sudden, you're confronted with a whole culture that just sees things a bit differently and, um, and you know, has a different perspective. So, Anytime you have this major kind of worldview, you know, you're, you're in a different kind of context, a different kind of world, 
there's kind of a shift of perspective there that, that understandably is unsettling, right? So for the first Christians, when you have this whole thing come about uh, with Jesus, what happens with Jesus, it is, it's a shift in perspective of what was anticipated. So that what, what you have in the Gospel of Mark, for instance, I'll talk a little bit about this tonight, uh, but what you have is this gradual unfolding of the identity of Jesus. So you remember the, the calming of the storm when Jesus is in the prow of the boat and, and uh, they're out in the Sea of Galilee and you have this massive storm come and Jesus is asleep. He's not upset by it at all. Life-threatening situations, but he's asleep. And the disciples come to him and they say what? Lord, don't you care? that we're about to die. <laughs> and Jesus stands up in the way that our, uh, you know, we, we kind of conceive of this in the movies and things, that Jesus goes, peace, be still. <laughs> and I love the Greek text really is more like, shut up! <laughs> <laughs> and everything goes, Whoosh. And what do the disciples, what is their response to that? Is it, um, wow, that was cool. Maybe Jesus can calm the storms in my life. <laughs> what Mark says is they were terrified. They were like, oh, my God. Literally. I'm not using that in a profane way. <laughs> they were like, who is this? We'll talk about that passage tonight in a little bit. It freaked them out. And with the resurrection itself, and I'll, I'll, kind, of, I'll kind of conclude with this. With the resurrection itself, nobody, nobody was thinking that resurrection would happen before the end of the age. We have nothing in ancient Jewish literature at all that anticipates people would be resurrected prior to the very end of the age. Resurrection was a, was a huge thing. In, in the Greco-Roman world, when you started talking about people rising from the dead, they thought zombies. <laughs> so they're, they're you know, what we would call zombies. It was not a pleasant thought to think of someone rising from the dead. In Judaism, you had this transformation of the body into a superior, superior form of existence. But that was going to happen at the very end of the age when God transformed the whole world. So the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead as the first fruits was counter expectation for everybody. Nobody anticipated it. And that was the impetus for this radical shift in perspective of what God was doing in the world. Now, it's the radical shift had started in the ministry and the teaching of Jesus himself because he came and he often talked about things in a way that was upside down from the way people you don't win the world by going and, and fighting it from a, a violent standpoint. You go and you win the world by loving it and laying your life down for it. Radical way of thinking. So, is the paradigm ever going to shift again? If God could do it once, and it wasn't a radical shift, it was, a, again, a fulfillment type of shift. It wasn't a radical shift away. It was a shift embodying and taking up into itself all that had happened in the covenants before. All the covenants of the Old Testament are taking up into Jesus. Abrahamic covenant, the laws fulfilled, everything. 
but it's never going to it's never going to shift again because he is a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. The, the new covenant that we'll talk about is an eternal covenant, and it's not going to shift again. Yeah, Bob. Yeah, so I'm trying to wrap my head around <coughs> Melchizedek is mentioned in Psalm one ten. Is that one ten four? Yeah. Yeah, so that's written a thousand years before Jesus. Yep. <coughs> and there he says, you're going to be a priest forever. So I guess what we're trying to do here is how do you understand that? What is David talking about? Yeah. Who is this priest forever? There's no, you look around and say, well, no one here is living forever. Yeah, that's right. So uh, what's, what's, what does he mean? Yeah. I mean, right with the Psalms, and the Psalms in some ways are the hardest part of Scripture besides Proverbs, to deal with the question of immediate historical context of what's going on behind this. You know, so who was David, what was David thinking at this point? And uh, the one thing that I would say is that it is clear that with, with a number of the Psalms, they have built into them something that could not be fulfilled at that time. It was anticipation of something that God would do later. So, you know, the, the general answer is that under the inspiration of the Spirit, he was writing about this future Davidic king who would fulfill this in some way. And I don't know that David had a, had a clear idea about what this would mean. So that sounds a little odd, but we do have a number of psalms. Like when you talk about David, the Davidic king being lord of the whole earth, there's no way that could be fulfilled in David's time. No. Right? So uh, you have passages... And we're going to look at one in the next session in, in Jeremiah 31. You have passages in the Old Testament that have built into them the inadequacy of what was going on at that time in the anticipation of something greater. So it's, it's forward-looking in that sense. And that's the way the author of Hebrews is taking this, that this would not be fulfilled until the time of Jesus himself. Not a couple of all the prophets. I'm sorry? Not a couple of all the prophets who yeah, did not see right. what they had hoped for. Yeah, yeah, and I, I do want to emphasize that with the prophets, we do have so much there that we need to kind of press into the historical moment and understand. Because sometimes you have stuff going on at that time that God is doing and dealing with. Right? And it, but it, it can be both a historical moment that is also foreshadowing what is coming, you know, later on. But, but there's that idea of this tying things together in history. That's an important idea. All right, you folks have been wonderful. Let's, uh, let's take a good 20-minute break. And then we'll come back and we're going to look at Hebrews chapter 8. As we get started back, let me ask real quickly. Uh, we have just a, a few people who are actually taking the course for credit. Can I see the hands of those who are taking for credit? Okay, if I could see those of you taking for credit right afterwards, uh, then that would be great. Let's just touch base about requirements and uh, that kind of thing. Um, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. We're, we're going to, we'll, have, we'll have fun with it. I just want to make sure that you're set up to do uh, an essay, a reflection essay, that would be very meaningful to you and, and be useful uh, to you and what you're doing right now. So we'll, uh, we'll take a look at that and talk about that. Okay, let me tell you what we're going to do in the balance of the morning. We're actually doing pretty well on our time. Uh, and so we're going to kind of walk through chapter 8 and see what the author is doing here in chapter 8. And um, this is a big turning point in the book. Um, the material that we've dealt with in chapters 5 through 7, the part that we've focused on, the Christology there, 
is on appointment, the author's now going to turn a corner and is going to begin moving toward the, the superior offering of this heavenly high priest, which is going to really be kind of the climactic culmination of the whole thing in some ways. And so we're going to we're going to kind of start moving that way tomorrow. We're going to deal primarily with uh, Hebrews chapter nine, uh, where he just unpacks three ways that the offering of Jesus is superior to the offering under the Levitical system. And then in chapter 10, he moves to kind of the climactic um, moment in the book where he brings all of this Christology together in the person and the work of Christ and, and really gives a final exhortation um, about it. Let me just say this, that, that Hebrews, the whole point of Hebrews is primarily exhortation. It's not just crafting a theology for its own sake. The theology is laying the foundation for people responding. Does that make sense? He's trying, to, he's trying to elicit a response to people, those people especially who are kind of on their way out the door, and he's trying to pull them back in and say, no, hey, there's good reason for believing the things that you believe. Good reason for believing the things that you believe. I think we're actually at a point in uh, the history of the church in North America where um, we, need to, we need to help people learn to think more deeply about the scriptures and about theology because there are good reasons to believe the things that we believe. Uh, historically, um, you know, you could, it's an intellectually responsible thing to, to study well and, and to listen well. There are good reasons for believing things that we believe. And I think that that's part of what Christian education should be is to help people have the resources to study well and think well as a part of their, their Christian discipleship. So that's one reason I'm so enthusiastic about the study center here. Uh, just think it's, it just makes so much sense what you guys are doing. And so I'm a fan already, uh, having just been introduced to it. You know, we were talking, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> at the end of uh, the last session, we were talking about um, this kind of idea of, of paradigm shift and what's kind of a key to that and um, I, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, the writings of Rosaria Butterfield, some of you will be you know, she uh, is having a, uh, an impact in the world, she's a person who was profoundly secular uh, you know, uni university professor and uh, was in a, in a world where she was um, very involved in kind of activism for uh, the uh, LGBTQ uh, community and that kind of thing. And so not someone you would anticipate um, being open to Christianity and that kind of thing. But she's, she got into a relationship with a loving Presbyterian pastor and wife who, who in essence, just opened their lives up to her and loved her <coughs> and uh, did not even share the gospel with her, didn't invite her to church initially but just loved her and kind of did life with her and opened their home to her friends and that kind of thing. But as a, a professor of literature, she started reading the Bible in part because she was writing about fundamentalist Christianity. And uh, so she said, well, this is kind of research. So uh, she started reading large chunks of the Bible. And um, she said, you know, that, that started shattering me because she said I, I, I was becoming so absorbed with the, the co cohesive message of the Bible that I started seeing that if I could just love the things that God loved, 
that it would it would it would start moving me to a different kind of thinking about God and a different <coughs> openness to relationship with God. And of course, she became uh, a committed believer, Christian. Uh, she's now the wife of a pastor in and, Durham. Uh, in Durham. It, oh, she's in Durham. Yes. Okay, I forgot that. She's in your neighborhood. She's in your neighborhood. We're, we're in her book. You're in her book. <laughs> Can I have your autograph? <laughs> okay. Well, no, that's that's awesome. Uh, so I, that's why everybody was going, yeah, okay. Uh, connection there. Okay. But here's but, but, but here's here's my point. Uh, the idea is that. Um, you know, scripture is powerful. It is something that is unique in the literature of the world. It's unique. You, you think about a, a body of literature that spans 1,500 years, 40 different authors, multiple different cultures that those authors came out of, and yet you have, have a cohesiveness. Uh, it's not that you don't have tensions and different things in the story of scripture and you know, that kind of thing. But you have an amazing cohesiveness where we move from the tree in the garden uh, at the beginning of the Bible to the tree uh, at the end of the, of, of the whole book of Revelation where the dwelling place of God comes all the way back around to coming to be with people, where, where we started with God walking with people in, in the garden. And you've got this amazing cohesiveness to the story. And, and yet, uh, more and more, I think we're going to, we live in a culture where the paradigm is shifting away from that. One of, honestly, one of the refreshing things about living in Vancouver, which is so profoundly post-Christian, and, and, and being away from the South, is that you don't have to kind of deconstruct all of the Christian veneer and assumptions and presuppositions before you actually start talking to people about how much this is just amazing news that God wants to relate to us. Uh, I've had several people this year, uh, and I think I mentioned this earlier, but I've had several people this year that, that when we start a conversation with, uh, okay, so do you understand the difference between the Old and the New Testament in the Bible? And their answer is, I've never heard those terms before. I have no idea what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. So you're, you're back at a level where you, you're, you're starting from scratch, and that has its own challenges. You know, uh, so pray for us as we're interfacing with people who are in that place. But in your world and in my home world, my home culture, what's happening is the paradigm is shifting away from cultural Christianity uh, as, as a cultural dynamic. And I actually am hopeful about that, that long term that could be healthy for the church. I understand how I mean that, but, but Christianity was never meant to be identified with the culture that it was in. Never meant to be that. And uh, and so when that happens and you have too much of an integration of Christianity and, and the culture of Christianity and government, that kind of thing, uh, then it, it normally historically has been a bad thing for the church. Now, should we live within our culture, live into our culture well, bodying forth, as uh, Malcolm Geist said earlier, uh, the love of Christ and the, and the gospel into our culture. Absolutely. We should be connected in the arts and sciences. We should be doing the, you know, great work out there. Uh, should we be involved in political stuff that matters and be good citizens and all that kind of stuff? Absolutely we should. But there's a difference between that and identification, and, and um, that's, that's another matter. So what we want to do is um, 
we want to, to see how this paradigm shift that's happened that Hebrews really talks about, um, how does that then get embodied and identified specifically with what is called the new covenant? Because that new covenant is going to be foundational for what the author is going to do in terms of the sacrifice of Christ. All right, so what we're about to see is the turn that happens in Hebrews in chapter 8, verses 1 and 2, and then how that leads from there uh, into his, his long, it's actually the longest quotation of the Old Testament and the New Testament that we're going to see in just a minute from Jeremiah 31. Um, and then how the author unpacks that is so interesting. And so, because he doesn't really unpack it. Uh, and I'll, I'll show you what I mean in a few minutes, okay? Uh, and we may even have a few minutes at the end today for, you know, questions. What we're actually doing pretty well. You're listening very well today. <laughs> you're great, okay. So here's where we are. We saw uh, in this last movement uh, this whole section on the appointment of the son as a superior priest. And the heart of that was he's a priest like Melchizedek. Um, he is superior to the Levitical priests um, because he has a priesthood that will not end. He, he has the power of an indestructible life. This resurrection life puts him in a very, very, very unique place in the universe, obviously. Okay. Uh, now what we see in chapter 8, verses 1 and 2, is there's a little hinge if you think about a hinge on a door, the way we normally would have hinges on a door, there are transitions in the literature of Scripture which function like hinges. They're both looking back and looking forward to tie two things together. Does that make sense? They're kind of the hinge that, that ties two things together. That's what we're going to see in chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. And then the author is going to go into this extended section on the superior offering of the appointed priest. And we're going to see how... Uh, just as we saw back under the first point, you had the introduction here to the appointment. He's, we're going to take a look at the introduction to the superior offering and then why the new covenant offering is superior. Notice that in both these cases, with Melchizedek and then the new covenant, these are Old Testament institutions. I mean, Melchizedek is part of the Old Testament story. The new covenant is part of the Old Testament story, <coughs> Jeremiah 31, right? And so you had built right there into the narrative of the Old Testament, into the text of the Old Testament, that something else was going to be coming, right? So let's take a look and see uh, what happens with this. Verses 1 and 2 are that hinge I was talking about. Now the main point of what we are saying is this. <clears throat> we have such a high priest, one who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty, Right, so there, <clears throat> the author is looking back at what he's just been talking about with the appointed appointment of Jesus. Everybody with me? So this kind of high priest that I've been talking about, this Melchizedekan high priest, that's the kind of high priest that we have. And he is a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven, <clears throat> minister in the sanctuary and the true tabernacle that the Lord not man set up. Now this, this idea of a tabernacle not made with hands is actually an Old Testament concept. You have this in several places in the Old Testament where you have something that God is the one who made it. So it's not made with human hands. It's, it's made with something else. 
So what he's starting to tap into now is, is he's looking back and saying, we have this kind of high priest. The anticipatory part of this is it's in heaven that his ministry takes place. It's in heaven. Um, so one of the main points that we're going to see on the superiority of the new covenant offering is it wasn't just an offering that was made on earth uh, in an earthly tabernacle. It was actually made in the real thing. It was made in the eternal, everlasting dwelling place of God is the idea. In other words, Jesus was able to enter right into the very presence of God in the universe. And he was, he was able to go right into heaven, actually. And we'll talk about that concept of heaven. We're not talking about something that's spatial here, right? Uh, like part of our existence. I'll tell you something freaked me out uh, when my daughter was about six years of age. She was sitting in the back seat of the car. And it was just me and her. And we were driving, talking about things. And she... Um, she suddenly said, out of the blue, she said, Dad, you know, if you went out into outer space, you wouldn't find heaven there. <laughs> and we started talking about it. And what she was saying was, it's not a part of, like, this physical reality. So I was kind of like, who are you and what have you done with my child? <laughs> right? But, but really, when we think about heaven, it's not like heaven is out there somewhere, 20 million miles away or something like that, because we're a part of the physical universe that is distinct from God. God's not a part of the, of the creator, or he is the creator, right? So it, it might be better to think of it as another dimension, if you will, if you pull back the curtain to this reality, you know, heaven is there. Now, Conceptually, we as humans need kind of spatial language to think about Jesus going off to heaven, seated high over, all that kind of thing. But, but what the Bible is not saying is that there's some kind of physical place out there in the universe that is heaven. It's a different reality from our reality. And we can, we can talk about that and unpack it theologically a bit more, but it's, it's, a, it's another reality. Um, you know, the idea with the Big Bang is that space and time and matter as we know it came into existence at that point. Space, time, and matter. Space, time, and matter as we know it did not exist prior to that. Okay? So, um, so yeah, <laughs> it's mind-blowing. It is mind-blowing. Uh, but it, it, the idea is that God is distinct from the created order. He's not bound by time by space, by matter as we know it, all right? So um, the idea here is that Jesus has gone into the very presence of the Father on our behalf as our high priest. He's gone into the very presence of the Father on our behalf, all right? Um, and, that, and this is our transition. This is our change. Now, in Second Temple Judaism, you had this idea of the... Uh, the concept of the heavenly dwelling place of God. And that's going to be really, really important for our passage here that the author is dealing with. Um, so when you have this, um, this idea in Second Temple Judaism, it shows up in other places, uh, like Paul mentions it in Galatians with the heavenly Jerusalem, that, that kind of idea. But in Second Temple Judaism, there was this apocalyptic idea that you really have um, the real Jerusalem in heaven 
and the real uh, dwelling place of God, the tabernacle slash temple kind of idea, and that this, it's not platonic, but it's like there's a real reality there in some way that's moving along through history with us. And remember in Revelation at the end, the heavenly Jerusalem comes down to earth and the dwelling place of God is with human beings again. So whatever this alternate reality is where God is, which we call heaven, that what's going to happen at the end of the age is that's going to be brought together in the new heavens and new earth where the dwelling place of God is going to be with, with people. But... What Hebrews is unpacking and what was an idea in Second Temple Judaism is that you have this real greater reality that's a lasting reality that's in the heavenly realm. And the author is going to make the point that what happened, and we see this in Exodus, that God in a sense drew back the curtain so that Moses could see the greater reality in the heavenly world, and that's how he sketched out the tabernacle. That somehow God gave him a peek and said, make it according to the pattern you see on the mountain. And that, so what the, what the earthly tabernacle is, is it's not kind of a, an idea of, of a platonic copy, but it is, it's, it's a copy of the greater reality that you have in the heavenly realm. Doesn't he see this as a, the, our reality as a platonic shadow of that? Well, he doesn't see it as platonic, I don't think. He uses imagery that sounds platonic, like the shadow of something, but often the shadows are linear from a time standpoint, so that uh, the Old Testament reality is a shadow of something that's coming in the future. That's not platonic. Plato, as you know, was more, you have the, the ideal reality in the heavenly realm, and the copies, you know, this chair is just, a, just an imperfect copy of the real chair that's in the ideal world. Uh, that's not really what the author is doing. This is more what I call Jewish apocalyptic. It's Jewish apocalyptic. So it's the idea that you do have this distinction between our realm and the heavenly realm. And yet God from that heavenly realm is breaking into earth and doing stuff. That's Jewish apocalyptic. So when Paul is on the Damascus Road and Jesus confronts him and he has a bright light and he falls to the ground, hears the heavenly voice, that's all apocalyptic kind of stuff. God breaking in. Yes. And isn't the face of Moses, when he has that glimpse you were talking about, yeah. radiant? Yes. A veil has to be put before his eyes yeah, because they can't bear don't, the sight. Don't get me started on that. All right. I love that, I love that part. Second uh, Corinthians 3, talk, Paul unpacks that. But yes, it's the idea that Moses in Exodus 34 meets God, and he doesn't even realize it, but by meeting God face to face, he, he's transformed by that. Uh, by that experience and his face glows and it kind of freaks people out when he comes down from the mountain so he has to put a veil over his face. What Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3 is that um, we're not like Moses. We don't keep snuffing out the glory of God. We're, we are, are people who have unveiled faces in the new covenant. And we meet with the Lord face to face so that we are being transformed from glory to glory. In other words, we're being transformed from the glory, the experience of the face-to-face -face relationship with God, to glory, to manifesting God's glory in the world and, and his presence in the world. Now, that's exactly what we should be doing. That's cool. As we walk with God, I mean, you know, people ought to be able to come to a place like this and say, you know, there's something different about these people. I mean, you know, they're just kind of shining, you know, in what they're doing in that sense. We don't physically glow normally uh, but 
But, you know, so, yeah, yeah Jane. It makes, me, it makes me think about the Lord's Prayer, right? I mean, the mission of what Christ did, basically, thy kingdom come, thy will be yeah, done. Yeah, absolutely right. As it, as it is in heaven. Yeah. And that really is the ultimate, our mission. Yes. Is, like you're saying, God's kingdom breaking through into this world. And that's, I guess that's where restoration, rebuilding, rejuvenation. Yeah. And I guess that's why the, I, the common grace, I guess that's why people love like those rebuilding shows and all of that and, yeah. and be reduced recycle and all of that because it is in some way reflection of the kingdom yeah. that's to come. Yes, I think that's abs- I think that's mm-hmm. absolutely right. And what Christ came to take take what's broken yeah. and restore and, and yes. right take sin and all that's of that cool. and yeah, just to fix it. No, I think that's I think that is mm-hmm. great. And I think the you mentioned common grace. Mm-hmm. The world is chock full mm-hmm. of the thumbprint of God. And you know, so part of our thing is we need to we need to participate in, in that and the beauty and I, that's why we love the arts and you know food. I keep mentioning food. I love food. <laughs> <laughs> you know, love taste buds. Uh, yeah, I believe in our resurrection bodies. We're still going to enjoy eating. But isn't and, that part of it too? The wedding feast. Yeah, I absolutely. Mean, yeah, 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 absolutely. So, so. Um, <laughs> This whole thing of, of, that the author is tapping into here has to do with the, the heavenly tabernacle, and that's his point as he is going to move into this next passage here. So take a look at this, uh, 8, 3 through 6. The purpose is to really you know, move directly into this more excellent ministry of the heavenly high priest. The process is he's going to focus on Exodus 25, 40, to show the heavenly orientation of the true tabernacle. So look at the passage together. Let's actually read this uh, aloud together again. I enjoy us doing that. Let's do that. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. So this one too has to have something to offer. Now if you were on earth, you would not be a priest, since there are already priests who offer the gifts prescribed by the law. The place where they serve is a sketch and a shadow of the heavenly sanctuary. Just as Moses was warned by God as he was about to complete the tabernacle. For he says, Seeing as you make everything according to the design shown to you on the mountain. But now Jesus has obtained a superior ministry, since the covenant that he mediates is also better. So um, what he says here is every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Now, he's already said this back at the beginning of chapter 5. As he was launching into the appointment of Jesus, he said the same thing. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. In that first movement we saw, he focuses on appointment. Now he's going to focus on the gift and sacrifices. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest since there are already priests who offer gifts prescribed by the law. So that's the Levitical priesthood. The place where they serve is a sketch and shadow of the heavenly sanctuary. Uh, Now, again, historically, Hebrew scholarship uh, up until about the mid-1950s really did focus on this as kind of a a Platonic Christianity. And there are still a few scholars around who really kind of buy into that as being the driving force. But the vast majority of scholarship since about 1960 has really said that, no, really, Hebrews is more oriented to um, 
an apocalyptic form of Judaism, which is this relationship between heaven and earth and God breaking in and, and, and that kind of thing. So when he talks about the sketch and shadow, he's saying that what we have on earth is a sketchy resemblance of the real thing. It's a sketchy resemblance in the sense of the real thing. It's, it's kind of a copy that you would make uh, of the real thing. My, my daughter is a graphic designer and uh, she uh, just kind of put a thing out on uh, Instagram where she was making these little kind of emojis of people just for fun and she, she uh, kind of made the mistake of saying, I'll do this for a dollar, you know, uh, and, and they're real simple little sketches, but then she had all these people kind of say, yeah, that'd be great. And she's like, ugh. But if you look at one of those little sketches, like she's, she's done of someone, you would, you would draw the connection between the sketch and that person because she's, she's really good at what she does. So you would say, yeah, that's Pat, right? But it's not really Pat. It's a, it's a sketch that points you to the real path, right? So what the author means when he says that the earthly tabernacle is, is a sketch, is a shadow, it's meant to be a pointer to the real thing. It's important that they were connected. It's important that Moses do everything according to the pattern that he saw on the mountain because the part of the function of the tabernacle is it was anticipating the greater thing that God would do in Christ. So it was meant to be like a signpost that said, okay, in this whole relationship with God thing, anticipate something greater is kind of the idea. Okay? So uh, Hebrews is uh, approaching it really, you know, kind of pressing into Scripture here from this passage in, um, in Exodus. So see that you make everything according to the design shown you on the mountain. But now Jesus has obtained a superior ministry since the covenant that he mediates is also better and is enacted on better promises. So the author is going to play off of this and say what actually uh, this is anticipating is described in another place, and that is the new covenant. So what he does in this next step in Hebrews 7 through 13 is he moves to this passage about the new covenant. The purpose is to show the superiority of the new covenant to the old covenant. And the way he does this is just simple because it's built right into the text. And we're going to see that in just a second. The process that he uses is the longest quote in the New Testament from Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. But what he does is another rabbinic technique. There was a rabbinic technique that uh, involved seizing on the meaning of, of a particular word. And the author does this in an amazing way here in this passage because here you have the longest quote in the New Testament, and yet his commentary on it is since there was something new, it means that something was old. <coughs> he seizes on this word new and says, well, if it was a new covenant, that means that by relationship, in some way, the previous covenant was considered old because this is something new God was doing. That's kind of his logic. So look at, look at how he lays this out, and, he, and most of this is going to be the quote of uh, Jeremiah 31. 
For if that first covenant had been faultless, no one would have looked for a second one. But showing its fault, God says to them, Look, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will complete a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant, and I had no regard for them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will establish with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds. Now look, look at the descriptions of the new covenant. What will characterize the new covenant? I will put my laws in their minds, and I will inscribe them on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they will be my people, and there will be no need at all for each one to teach his countrymen or each one to teach his brother, saying, Know the Lord, since they will all know me from the least to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their evil deeds and their sins I will remember no longer. When he speaks of a new covenant, he makes the first obsolete. Now, what is growing obsolete and aging is about to disappear. So his commentary consists of just this part of the passage right here. When he says something is new, kine in Greek, something is new, it means that the first covenant, the Sinai covenant is what he's talking about at this point, is obsolete. It's obsolete. Now, what is growing obsolete is aging and about to disappear. Now, let me just say a word about the timing of that. The author is not speaking present tense from his perspective, his time, saying that the old covenant is not obsolete yet and it's going to be passing off the scene. He's thinking within the context of Scripture itself. He's thinking Jeremiah 31, <coughs> the context of that passage. So if you, if you think with me back to... The, the perspective of Jeremiah 31, long before the coming of Christ, right? He's saying from the perspective of Jeremiah 31, when Jeremiah 31 says, a new covenant is coming, the author of Hebrews would say, that means that the old covenant's days are numbered because this new covenant is coming. Do you understand what I'm saying? So he believes that with the coming of Jesus and the establishment of the new covenant, that God's doing something different. And the old covenant, it's not that the old covenant is no longer significant. It's just that the old covenant has been taken up into the new covenant in a sense. It's old and therefore it's transformed in the new covenant. So you take something like the sacrificial system. Uh, what happens with the sacrificial system, the New Testament says, is that it is all fulfilled in Christ. Right? So you have this idea of the old covenant passing off the scene and it coming in Christ. Now, let me, let me address a couple of things here. Then I want us to talk about how do we think about the nature of the good news and the gospel here in light of this description of the new covenant. But let me, let me say this first and then uh, kind of walk through this, and then I'll, I'll give you a chance to ask uh, some questions, and we can, uh, we can think uh, about this. So one of the, one of the points here um, that he says, go back to the previous screen, uh, 
he, he says that um, God says, look, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will complete a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And he's going to go on, on down and talk about Israel here. How do we think about this? That the new covenant specifically is spoken of as to the Jewish people, particularly. How do we think about this? And I think, I think the passage raises questions about the whole question of relationship between Jews and Gentiles, how we think about that within Christianity. And let me, let me just say um, where I'm coming from, and then we can, we can kind of talk about that if you would like to. Uh, a lot of the church has been dominated <clears throat> by what uh, would be called replacement theology. That is that Judaism is, is kind of done with the coming of Jesus and moving into the Gentiles, and then uh, it is replaced with the church. Um, that's one way that people have looked at it. You have other uh, forms of theology that would say, no, God is doing more of a parallel kind of thing where you still have Israel as a distinct entity that God's still relating to and dealing with, and then you have the church, and those are two different things and, and all this. Um, so I'm, I'm not coming from a dispensationalist standpoint. I'm not coming from kind of a, a two-covenant uh, approach, and I'm not coming from a replacement standpoint either because I think, I think the better way to think about this is what I would call fulfillment theology. Fulfillment theology. I think that um, my Jewish friends that I have in Israel who are fulfilled Jews, I think it's still significant that they are ethnically Jewish. Uh, Paul says in his writings that the gospel is for the Jew first and also to the Greek. He can say that, um, a, he can make statements that almost sound contradictory. He can say that a real Jew is the one who is circumcised in the heart. But that's, that's what a true Jew is, is someone who is circumcised in the heart. But then Paul can also say that for the Jewish people, they're significant because the covenants are theirs and the gifts of God and the calling of God, and this is irrevocable. So you have kind of a both-and thing going on there. So here's the way I would, would understand it. When I interact with my Jewish friends in Israel, I've, I've taught there numerous times. Uh, one of the most amazing times uh, that I had was when half of the class were Christian, uh, Jewish Christian pastors and half were Arab Christian pastors. Arabs and Jews, and we were doing simultaneous translation into Hebrew and uh, Arabic, and, and I was teaching in English. It was absolutely chaotic, and because it was Middle Eastern, it was even more chaotic. <laughs> because, I mean, you know, and they kind of prepped me for this before, but, you know, so these guys are, they're, they're yelling across the room at each other, and how can you think that, you know, I mean, it's just kind of, whoa. Um, but it was so much fun. It was the most dynamic class that I've, that I've ever been in, uh, in terms of the atmosphere of the class. But the first time I went, I had all Jews in the class. And we got to the end of the class, and we did what I normally um, would do at the end of class. In fact, we're going to do this at the end of our time together. We're going to sing a hymn together. It's kind of based on Hebrews. And we sang that hymn, and it was okay. But one of the sisters in the room said, can we sing Ram Banisah HaMashiach? High and exalted is the Messiah. And uh, oof. one of the guys in the room is one of the leading worship uh, leaders in Israel. Every two years, about 2,000 Jewish 
this Messianic believers come together for a music festival and they share all of the um, worship music they've been writing, you know, and and then this gets put on CDs and stuff. But Jamie is one of the, the leading um, Messianic Jewish worship uh, guys. And uh, so Jamie had his guitar there. He got out his guitar. So here I am in a room with all of these Jewish believers, and they are lifting their hands to Jesus. <clears throat> and they are singing, Ram Vanissa HaMashiach. And I'm just crying. You know, I just, this is so moving to me. And it really started started affecting me. And I thought, you know, uh, here's the right way to think about this. And I talk, I've talked to my, my Jewish friends there who are evangelical. And, um, and, and basically, it's this. We are all one body of Christ. There are not two people. We are one people in Christ. The, the dividing wall has been broken down. There is one body of Christ, one church. We're all under the same covenant. We all are, are serving the, the one Lord, one faith, one baptism. You know, this kind of thing. We're all all the same in that sense. But you know what? Still, there's something distinct about my Jewish friends that cannot be said about me as a Gentile. Yeah. When, you, when I look at, at a Jewish person, it's like a billboard that says, God has done special things in the world. Mm-hmm. And he's done it in relation to this people as the foundation of what he has done in the world. And it matters that you have that <coughs> distinction of what it means to be Jewish. There's not a different way of being saved, not distinct, we're one in Christ, and all that kind of stuff. But at least historically, there's something profoundly unique that in this little bitty slice of land that you have there, God has done amazing things in the world, and and Jewishness is still an important force in the world. And so you have this, this distinctiveness. So when he's talking about this covenant he's made, we as Gentiles are grafted in to Israel and Judah. Mm-hmm. We, are, we are not doing something different. We are a part of the fulfillment that God had for the children of Abraham all along. We're part of the fulfillment. We are made the people of God grafted into uh, Judaism as the way of relating to God, the God of covenant, Right? So, do you understand? Are you hearing me, what I'm saying? It's a little bit different way of thinking about it, but I'm just saying that that Jewishness is still a vitally important thing in the world because if you you just say, just from a historical perspective, you can say, God has done unique things in the world in in and through this people. That's why I love the name for Messianic Jews as completed Jews. Yeah. And that's the fulfillment. Yeah. It's really excellent. Right. And by the way, there are about 150 Messianic congregations in Israel. Now, God's doing amazing things in Israel. If you want to see some of the cool things, there's a ministry there called One for Israel, which is kind of the umbrella organization for this uh, school, but also they do incredible videos, and they're just wonderful people. And and they're now, 30% of the school is Arab, so it's Arabs and Jews living together as one people and loving each other, and it's pretty pretty awesome what God is doing there. So I say all that to say that's how we get at the Israel and uh, Judah kind of thing. But now this is the other thing I want us to do as we move toward completing this morning. Look at the three descriptions of what New Covenant would involve. Three descriptions of what New Covenant would involve. And think about what are the implications of this as we try to explain and unpack the gospel for people. Good news of what God's doing in the world. Think about this. 
So he says, it's, you know, the covenant's not going to be like the covenant I made with their fathers um, because they didn't, you know, they basically failed in the covenant and broke the covenant. Go back to Deuteronomy, you see the blessings and the curses that God had promised uh, if people, if they didn't follow through and fulfill the covenant. For this is the covenant I will establish with the house of Israel in those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds. I will inscribe them on their hearts. So the first thing is that you would have an internalization of the law of God rather than just conformity to an external type of, uh, you know, standard. So not just conformity to an external standard. It would be something that would, would move to an internalization. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't live by Scripture and follow, you know, the commands and all that. Yes, we do. We live ethically, uh, but we... We have something that is grounded more in the transformation of the human heart. Uh, it's something that, that happens on the inside by the work and the power of the Holy Spirit. There's a transformation that begins taking place in, in real Christianity. Where the new covenant is really happening, it involves change and transformation as we are, are you know, being changed from the inside out. So you have this idea of, of the internalization uh, I was coming back from Israel um, a number of years ago. I think my wife had been with me that time. And I was sitting behind some Hasidic uh, Jews, and there were a couple of guys, and they had the black hats and the, you know, the uh, sideburns, curly sideburns and that kind of thing. And so we, you know, just standing up and stretching, kind of got to talk to them. And they, they were really interested in, in the fact that I actually study the Bible, and that's what I'm, you know, what I do. And they just... We're kind of amazed at that, and, and uh, so we uh, we got into conversation, and uh, one of the guys kind of asked his stump the uh, stump the Gentile question, stump the Christian question. You know, um, how many how many people went down to Egypt? You know, with Jacob, uh, this kind of thing, and I won't go into that. It's there's a very good explanation for it. But anyway, so we uh, we we talked about that, but then I said, well, let me ask you a question. What's the main point of, of Torah? What's the main point of the first five books? Timothy. Of course, they, they wouldn't think of those terms. It's all just one book, you know, in, in Hasidic Judaism. Uh, I said, what's the, main, what's the main point of you take Pentateuch or whatever? What's the main point? And he said, well, you know, God showed us the way we're supposed to live. And we're supposed to live that way, you know. And I said, I don't think that was the main I said, I think the main point was the question of whether or not we would really trust God. Trust. Trust. I said, because you look at the you look at the balance of the story, you go back to Abraham. Abraham was considered righteous because he believed God. He trusted God. He trusted God. And even when they had the law, what started to go wrong with the wilderness generation was they saw all these things that God had done, and yet they did not trust him. to the law, it's my fundamentally in life, am I going to trust God more than I trust myself? Am I going to believe him more than I believe my own perspective on the world? And the guy said, hmm, never, never thought about that, you know, that kind of thing. So we had a good conversation. It was great. <coughs> so the idea is that what is needed is transformation. Again, Paul's theology is that the problem with the law 
not the law, it's us, but it's ultimately that the law could not give life. It could not bring about transformation. That's something that the spirit, the spirit had to do. All right, so that's the first thing, internalization. There will be no need at all for each one to teach his countrymen or each one to teach his brothers, saying, Know the Lord, since they will all know me. So fundamentally, what the good news is about is that we can have this face-to-face -face relationship with God where we know him. We actually know him. We have a relationship with him. It's about the relationship. So transformation of the heart, this face-to-face -face relationship with the Lord. Going back to 2 Corinthians 3 again. We all with unveiled faces, Paul says, behold the glory of the Lord, and we are being transformed by that glory. So know the Lord. And then the final thing that the author is going to really capitalize on, for I will be merciful toward their evil deeds, and their sins I will remember no more. Their sins I will remember no more. It's not that God gets amnesia. God remembers every sin you and I ever committed. That's not what he's saying. This is, in, if you look at the parallelism in the, in the passage, in the Old Testament passage, the parallelism, the point is that God no longer counts our sins against us. And it's decisive, and it's from now on. It's that God so completely deals with our sin in such a way that God no longer counts our sin, any sin, as counting against us, holding us under judgment. So we're put into right relationship, face-to-face -face relationship with him by virtue of the fact, not that we are perfect in our righteousness, because we're not. We still struggle and sin and do different things. But by the fact that in our association, our relationship with Jesus, we participate in his perfection and his righteousness, and God has dealt with our sins in a way that he has, he has covered them as in the sacrificial system, but he's done it permanently. It's not something that has to be done over and over and over and over and over again. It's because he's so decisively dealt with it, they're no longer counted against a person who's in a new covenant. Now, does that mean that we can just sin and do whatever we want to? Paul would say, may benoito, may it never be. Absolutely not. Of course not. If I have this relationship with God, I'm going to want to do what's right. I'm going to want to please him. I'm not going to want to take his forgiveness lightly. I'm going to want to lovingly live out relationship with him the way that it should be lived out because of the magnanimous grace and mercy he's shown to me. Right? But this is the other point of the new covenant that's just amazing news that, that God has so decisively dealt with our sins that we are not held in judgment anymore. We're not seen as falling short of what God has for us. Um, and that's, that's at the heart of what's going on uh, with the good news. So he's going to now unpack this as we move into chapter 9. Um, he's going to talk about the old covenant system and, and the practice, and he's going to talk about the tabernacle and the movement into the presence of God. And then he's going to contrast that with three things that we see in Jesus' sacrifice that were different in the balance of chapter 9. And we're going to, we'll see that as we kind of, kind of go um, along. So um, the, the whole thing that I was sharing earlier about just this um, amazing uh, thing that God has done in my Jewish friends 
uh, that's, it's, it's still something that is foundational and significant there, but all this is grounded in history and what God has done in history. That's important. Um, but the beautiful thing is it's a fulfillment of what God had always intended was that the, the Jewish people would be kind of the, the foundational move for God moving this great news out into the whole world. And um, the ultimate vision is that it would, would be what would cause the ultimate transformation of the world. Okay. All right, let's push the pause button there. We actually have a few minutes to uh, kind of talk through a few things. Uh, if you'd like to ask some questions, so Carl? Someone might say, Yeah. I have a friend. Yeah. yeah, I have a friend in my life. So, George, does that mean that, oh, I'll just say it, there's controversy about the political, political in Israel now yeah. with regard to the Palestinians, and, and a lot of Christians interpret what, what, what you've spoken, which we, I, I agree with, um, as, a, as, a, as, a way, as a reason we should endorse present political Israel and its methods and tactics. Yeah. Yeah. You guys ask such easy questions. I, I appreciate that. No, I, I'm just telling you where I'm coming from, kind of what I'm doing uh, here. But what I would say, my perspective is, that you have political entities in the world that have to be dealt with separately from covenantal people right. of God, right? So, um, so do I think that it's significant that we have a Jewish nation Today, uh, just in terms of what's happened in the world, yes, of course, I, of course, that's a, that's, in however you slice that, if you're even coming from just a secular standpoint, that's, that's just kind of an amazing story historically. You know how you have the reestablishment of the nation of Israel and all that happens surrounding that. But I think that we've got to, we've got to. I, I would say that in terms of the nation of Israel, we've got to think of that as a modern political entity. That really has not much to do with with spiritual life, with Christian movement, with Jew Messianic Judaism, and that kind of thing. In fact, in Israel, uh, what happens is that government often is um, part of uh, things that make it difficult for those who are believers in Israel, both Jewish and Arab. Uh, so, so for instance, let me just give a for instance here. I do think that we, um, we ought to be concerned about our Arab brothers and sisters in the Middle East, mm -hmm. as well as just the justice issues surrounding all of that. But I think even, even Christians at times, uh, some, some of my colleagues kind of boil that down to that, well, if the Christians, the Jewish Messianic believers in the, in the nation of Israel are doing what's right, they need to go politicize their movement and stand at the crossroads and, you know, at the, the border and vie for justice for the Palestinians, that kind of thing. I think that's a misunderstanding as well of the situation in Israel because they are already the Arabs and Christian, Jews who are Christians are marginalized in, in Israeli society. And for them to politicize their movement by going and doing a political move to try to deal with the justice issues in the occupied territories and that kind of thing, I, I don't think that would be the wisest thing for them to do. And yet some of them are ministering to people in the occupied territories. They're just not doing it as political kind of impetus and that kind of thing. So what I would say is, my, my basic answer 
is that we need to deal with nation of Israel political entity as something different and distinct. I'm not saying it's not significant in the history of the world and all of that, but we need to be very careful. Those pe I, I disagree with those people in our culture who are just kind of giving carte blanche uh, of affirmation of the nation of Israel based on biblical, you know, principles or something like that. I think that's a misreading of Scripture, a misunderstanding of Scripture, personally. So I think that's distinct from saying there is a movement of God still in Israel. Uh, part of that movement is Jewish. Part of that movement is Arab. We need to be connected to the church. And uh, let me give you one example of that, and then we'll go, go to further question. Here's, here's an example of that. It blows my mind. Every time I've been to Israel, the people who have hosted me and taken me around, I've, all, I've only seen Israel from the standpoint of Messianic believers, Arab and Jewish, who take me around the country. And, uh, and so one time, one of my friends who's a pastor up in Haifa was taking me up around Galilee, and we were, it was just me and him, and we were going around to the northern side of the Sea of Galilee, and it was lunchtime, so we stopped, and there was a van on the side of the road, and another guy, and they were kind of cooking you know, just selling stuff on the side of the road, some uh, bread, and, and the guy in the van had uh, pop and different things that they were selling. And uh, we had talked to the guy in the van, and the guy said, yeah, I'm from generations of fishermen on the Sea of Galilee. And my Jewish friend just, he just, his, his whole thing is, uh, you know, someone will ask him something about himself, and he'll say, well, uh, this is who I am, but the most interesting thing about me is I'm a follower of Yeshua. Are you a follower of Yeshua yet? <laughs> And we got into conversation with this guy. So I've kind of seen it from the inside. It's amazing that the vast majority of my friends who go over for the tours have never met a Messianic believer at all. In fact, most of the tour guides that they have are not believers. So there's no connection there with the church, with what God is doing in Israel, which I think is, is kind of sad. You know, it's kind of sad. So I make a distinction between the political entity of, of the nation of Israel. I'm not saying it's insignificant, even in what God's doing in the history of the world. I'm just saying that I make a distinction between that entity, which, you know, from a political standpoint, we could say Israel needs to be strong for the stability of the Middle East and all, but that's, that's a political question. It's not a spiritual biblical question for me. And, and yet, what God is doing in the church in Israel is biblical and spiritual, and it's a, but it's a, it's a distinct thing. How is that different than today? Today, you're making a distinction with Israel today. That the the kingdoms of Israel and Judah that walked away from the Lord, yeah, they were political enemies. Yeah. So why don't you know, you know what I'm saying? I mean, no, they absolutely were, they right. They're outside the will of God. They, yeah. They. Uh, so you're uh, right. I mean, there's a, there's a parallel there where God basically, and what happens in the New Testament that's very interesting, like in Paul, Paul will actually use passages from the Old Testament that are speaking of national Israel. And we'll turn them around and use them of the pro promises actually being fulfilled in the church as both Jewish and Gentile. Mm -hmm. So why shouldn't we take the same way as we do? I, I, I agree. I agree. Yes? Um, can I shift gears just a little bit? Sure. Um, I want to go back to this passage and this quote from Jeremiah. Okay. Because I'm intrigued by the, the verb tenses yeah. in the passage. And in the, in the historic context when Jeremiah wrote it. Yes. It, Right.
or don't seem to be completed until the second coming of Christ. And so we're living in this time where the old is obsolete, but the new is not fully here. Yeah. So I wanted to ask, or does the writer in Hebrews seem to bring that out at all, uh, or other yeah. scriptures, and has that been commented on? I think I know what you're what you're asking. Give me one example of where you think there's still something to anticipate that's coming in the future. Um, that is not already a done, a reality well, that we would so, experience. So that phrase of they will all know me, yeah. if we put that in the context of the Jewish people, it's very clear that they don't all know him, as in Yeshua, the Messiah, Right. Um, but see, I, I think what he's saying here is that those who become a part of the new covenant, which was established by Jesus, will know me. I mean, that's that's fundamental to it, is that the whole the whole nature of the relationship is that they will have an, a, a, an immediate relationship with, with God. The image he's going to move to is that we have the ability to move right into the Holy of Holies ourselves as Christians. Now, what you're Part of what you're getting at is the tension I talked about earlier of the now and not yet. So do I, do I know and have a face-to-face -face relationship with God right now? I would say yes, I do. It's not like it will be at the end of the age where in my resurrected body I will see him face-to-face, -face, as Paul says. So it's a now and not yet. Do I know him? Yes, I do. But will, will that be consummated in a way that will be even greater, yes, at the end of the age. Uh, are my sins decisively forgiven? Yes, my sins are decisively forgiven. I still struggle as a human being in this fallen world. I still have to ask forgiveness from my wife when I say something stupid, you know, that kind of thing. But but my sins are decisively forgiven. And, and you know, it's anticipating a time when I no longer will sin because I'll, I'll be in my resurrected body. Uh, so it's a now and a not yet. So there is an anticipation of what is coming. Um, so does that help just a little bit? No, no, definitely. I mean, I think it, it's, it's that idea of kind of working out your salvation. Salvation, yeah. But yeah. I, so I guess I was just curious if, if the writer of Hebrews kind of ever brings that out as he continues to move on as an application for the believers he's talking to. He does. We're going to really see it in the climactic moment at the end of, or not the end, but in uh, chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. He's going to kind of unpack the implications of that for us. So we'll get there. Warren. So Old Testament saints will be in heaven by the faith in Christ to come, whereas New Testament saints will be there because of Christ in retrospect. Yeah. who came, yeah. and both will be part of the cloud of witnesses that are spoken of later in this. Yes. Is that true? I think that's right, and uh, we're going to see this tomorrow. Uh, in chapter, toward the end of chapter 9, the author says something really interesting, and that is, um, he says that Christ just died once for sins. In other words, one sacrifice for sins uh, for all time. And he reads that for all time as from now to the end of the world and now back to the beginning of the world. Because that's what he says. For if this was not the case, it was not just one sacrifice covering all time, he would have had to have died repeatedly from the foundation of the world. Mm -hmm. 
Now what that, what that says to me is that the author of Hebrews understands the implications of Christ's sacrifice as in some way stepping outside of time and covering all of time. If Christ is God and human, he's in, this gets pretty heavy, so hang with me. He's the nexus between time and eternity. Time and outside of time. Okay? And so that means that the implications of who he is and what he has done can reach back to the beginning of the world, which is kind of mind-blowing to think about. But I think that what that means is that someone like Abraham, someone like Moses, other Old Testament believers, as they believed in Yahweh, as they trusted the Lord, then Christ receives that trust in their faith and somehow, mysteriously, they get benefit from what Christ would eventually do on the cross. Kind of mind-blowing to think about that. Now, the problem is some of these things are not kind of unpacked theologically for us and explained the details like we would want. But I think that's clear in Hebrews, that he believes that in some way Christ's sacrifice reaches back to the beginning of, of the world so that people's faith can be credited on the basis of what Christ would do. Um, again, kind of mind blowing. That probably gives you enough to think about uh, for the rest of for the rest of the day. Would you say that's kind of what chapter eleven is all about? Or it is. Yeah. It is what chapter eleven right. is about. We have this paradigm, this pattern of of faith. I wish we were going to have time to deal with chapter eleven, which we're not. Uh, so I guess I kind of am right now. So, uh, <laughs> but it's the idea of chapter eleven is that faith is not a leap into the dark. Faith is stepping out on what God has revealed to be true in the world. So it's taking a, a bold stance on the basis of what God has revealed to be true. But it does mean that God, with faith, calls things that are not yet reality into existence. In other words, when you're trusting God for something, you don't see it yet. You see what he's, who he is and what he's done, but you don't see the answer yet. And part of trust is that, well, Lord, based on your character and who you are, I trust you that this is going to come to reality. So, uh, so that's, that's a whole other thing. But, yes, you have that paradigm and pattern of by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith. That's a, another rhetorical technique, by the way, uh, called anaphora. It's a repetition over and over and over again. It kind of drives something home. Uh, but, but the point is, okay, this is the right way to live, by faith, by trust. And again, I think it's remembering that it's not the gift, it's the gift giver. It's the person yeah. who. Yeah, that's it's, right. It's, it's a relationship. God, right, it's about him. That's right. And it's to look at him, not, and God saying, it's it's about me and you. It's not about what I'm doing for you. It's not the ticket to heaven. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. It's about the relationship. It's about the relationship. Can I just say one on this? Sure, sure. Say that. Let me just make 
clear. He's not saying that we no longer have any rules. He's not saying that. You know, we, we still have statutes. I mean, you take something like Romans 13.1, we should obey the government, yeah. you know, that kind of thing. We still have the ethical rules. Nine of the Ten Commandments are reiterated in the New Testament. Right. We have the we, we don't commit adultery. We don't steal. You know, these are all reiterated, and, and therefore we we do still have the rules. The point is, we don't live from an orientation that says life is all about conformity to the rules. Well, that's what I'm saying. It's growing out of relationship. The and point is, that's just mind blowing because their history is that they did do conformity to our rules. I like to conform to rules. I did it in front of my father, even though my heart was far from being nice about it. But you know, it's that internal shift yeah. in all of us that says, okay, you know. Because Paul says some people were like Apollos and some were like this, because it would be easy to be conforming to people who believe the same yeah. sort of things that you believe, right? Does yeah. that make sense? Yeah, it does. Yeah. I mean, we, we I'm tend to bring that up because it's just mind blowing. If we're not careful, it's easy to default to the kind of the least common denominator. Okay, just tell me the things I'm supposed to do and I'll be okay. <laughs> right? And, and that's not the way life works well. It's, it's got to be driven by something deeper than that. So, all right, let's have a word of prayer, and uh, we'll turn it back over to Matt. And again, if I could see those of you who are taking for granted, that would be great. Father, thank you very much for the time that we've had together this morning. Lord, thank you for this delightful group and just the uh, refreshing experience it is for me to be here and, and to just walk through your word together. Thank you, Lord, that uh, you have given us your word. You have spoken into the world, and it gives us a... Uh, a point of reference and an anchor um, that, that really just challenges us. It does blow our minds, and we're, we're thankful um, for your speaking to us through your word this week. Uh, Lord, I pray for these folks that they would shine today. I pray that, Lord, you would bless them with your presence. I pray that, um, Lord, we would advance your cause in Chapel Hill, North Carolina today. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Very quick things. Um, sorry, I promise we'll wrap up very quick. Some folks asked about the Balkum article and had issues with the email. We've got extra copies if anybody wants a printed copy. Um, tonight, open to everyone. So for those who are able to join, feel free to bring a friend, even if they're not ready to roll to the class. Um, we'll be gathering at 6, and then uh, George's um, talk, not lecture, will start at 7. Uh, and then tomorrow for lunch, we're going to try to wrap up by like 11.50 or 11.55 to go to Lula's, which is um, maybe a quarter of a mile that way. Um, some of us will walk over. For anyone who wants to drive, I can direct you to parking. Um, but for those who are, are able and like to, we're going to walk over 1155 together. So thank you.